This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, guys, and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This is Andrea Stino from uh, Real Vision speaking. Turkey is stuffed, and it is not even Thanksgiving yet. This is, of course, a uh, Thanksgiving joke, but it's also very telling for the financial landscape that we are amidst. Um, we will get back to why, but Turkey is actually the best performer in the world when it comes to equity markets this year. Today, I'm joined by my uh, colleague, Weston Nakamura from uh, Tokyo. Uh, it's very good to see you, Weston. I'm looking forward to uh, spending the next 30 minutes in your company. Yes, sir. Good to see you too. We we will try to make it an interactive session today. Uh, so we strongly urge you to ask all the questions you may have. Uh, we will answer as many as possible over the next 30 minutes. So uh, shoot us your questions at YouTube, Twitter, uh, the Real uh, Vision uh, webpage, and uh, so on. Uh, we will get back to those in a second. But before we get to uh, the questions, Weston, we had the Fed minutes earlier, um, and I think the headlines were pretty clear, right? Um, it is now written on paper that Fed officials see smaller rate hikes coming soon. What do you make of that in the market reaction? Um, the, I mean, as far as like Fed funds pricing, I mean, now we're at 50 uh, base points uh, with an 80% chance that wasn't really that, you know, I mean, it's already been there. So it's, I think that's, that's kind of not really changing any of the, that narrative. Um, but markets were kind of not rallying per se, but we're seeing some upside prior to that. Um, and that was coming off of the PMI uh, from November manufacturing that slipped below uh, estimates as well. So there's sort of this kind of upside in equity markets already underway uh before that happened and mind you this is also the wednesday before thanksgiving you have very light volumes you had very light volumes in europe as well so it's a lot of systematic uh flows yeah in, indeed and uh, it's always interesting to watch the price action on a day like this just ahead of thanksgiving uh because i mean the usual narrative is that the market trading is sort of thin liquidity wise and therefore we see these moves uh, around key figures to a larger extent than usual maybe uh, so on days like this do you watch out or do you just lean back weston no, no, I de like so days like this um, are very, very interesting and very not just interesting, but they're actually really critical to watch because of what I was just saying before about like uh, systematic flows and stuff like that. Like, um, so if the active fund management community, human traders, if you will, are largely absent from uh, market participation on days like this, um, especially the US based ones, right? We get to see the picture of what the market trades like absent those those players and when you have something like a you know weaker than expected pmi print uh come come through and you see the what the market reaction is the you know bad news is good news or whatever um you know you could assume that well if they're absent if the market is absent those active uh managers and those active uh, participants then the systematics 
are apparently currently programmed for trading um, markets directionally in ter in terms of bad news equals good news. And so we have to keep that in mind for when the next time we sort of see them too, because you know, act active managers, they, they don't make like split second decisions once a, a, a single sort of data point or whatever comes out, be it a jobs number or CPI, whatever it is. Um, a lot of it is just systematic flows um, and, and futures driven and, and things like that. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see ice in isolation um, and these are those sort of times where we get to see that. Uh, we have a question on YouTube that I will simply like you to pass on to you, Weston. Uh, it's from Mike asking you, with the reported shortage of turkeys in the U.S., how do you plan to play the trade ahead of Thanksgiving? Are you long or short, or do you plan to lean back and wait for dessert? <laughs> uh, I, I, I have no, I have no trading advice on turkeys. <laughs> me, me neither um, it, it tends to be a dry trade at least let me put it like that so, <laughs> in in, uh, in in any case um i i wanted to show a chart uh that i find almost mind-blowing uh, and i've borrowed it from uh, my friend charlie bilello so uh, i hope uh, you can bring it up on the screens uh brian it, it's basically a heat map of the developments across the country etfs measured in us dollars so country etfs on equities across the board um across the globe basically and the, the reason why i made this joke about turkey earlier this year is that turkey is the extreme outlier this year when you uh, look at equity returns um measured a couple of days ago, it was up 67.2% in US dollars, that equity ETF on the Turkish market. Pretty interesting given what's going on in Turkey with um, bizarre double-digit inflation, a central bank not willing to fight it. Uh, but apparently, um, the valuations of the uh, Turkish stock market were so low that um, from a value perspective, it made sense to buy into it. And if you look at this, um, let's say top 10 list uh, on the ETF heat map here. We have uh, countries like Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Qatar, the World Cup host, um, Peru, Argentina. Uh, I mean, all kind of in the emerging markets bucket. While if you look at the um, blue covered area, we have the US right in the middle of the pack with uh, roughly a 15% drawdown this year, Japan at minus 18% Western. Quite an interesting picture. And I mean, if you asked someone first of Jan whether this would be the picture come the end of the year, no one would have dared to answer this. I, 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 I would be quite, quite explicit about that. So what do you make of this picture? Is it something that you've noted and is something that you've um, sort of pondered um, uh, whether to, to sort of expect to continue into next year? You mean regarding specifically like TUR Turkey? The no, no, but but I mean just the difference between developed markets and emerging markets in this sense. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is kind of what I've talked to to you uh, about, kind of internally as well as um, you know, I've talked. I actually just talked about this uh, on a. Um, I was so I was on a podcast, um, the What the Finance podcast that's just came out on YouTube uh, earlier today. It's on my Twitter as well. Um, and I, I dive into sort of this thesis of 2023 um, in which I think that we're going to we're entering or we have already entered this kind of period of uh, market fragmentation where you're going to start seeing like it's not going to be this kind of blanket risk on risk off or strong dollar all EMs down equally or everything, you know, all DM currencies moving in tandem percent percent 
against the dollar or or, or what have you, um, you're going to see kind of dispersion because you're going to get the central bank veil lifted away. Um, that was a time where a lot of things were papered over, and then it's going to expose a lot of the idiosyncrasies within uh, and among regions, countries, companies, um, sectors. And so you'll probably start to see some some more, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be fundamental, uh, fundamentally, you know, aligned, but dispersions uh, amongst um, all that. Another thing, too, I'll say about Japan, the Japan ETF, um, that, yeah, I guess it's taken a beating, but if you look at um, DXJ, which is like the Japan, the currency hedge one uh, mm. ETF, that one's up, I think it's like probably around 10% year to date, um, and it hasn't really been, uh, it's been kind of flat the entire year, and that's obviously because of the currency um, hedge. So, yeah. Yeah, so the reason for the underperformance is, is basically the dollar-yen moving upwards uh, throughout the uh, course of 2022. Uh, we have a question from Fred coming in on YouTube um, asking us about the current state of the Turkish economy. Uh, and I'm happy to, to to at least give my perspectives and uh, please chip in, Weston, if you have anything to add on Turkey. But um, we, we published a, um, a piece on Turkey earlier today um, called The Rise of the Turks, uh, obviously um, seen in perspective of this outperformance in, in Turkey. Turkish equities this year, but I actually think that Turkey is one of the few countries gaining from this conflict in uh, in Ukraine. Um, the first reason is that some of the southern European economies, they use Turkish soil to sort of circumvent the sanctions against Russia. We've seen a material pickup in exports from Italy to Turkey, and at the same time, a surprise pickup in exports from Turkey to Russia. Uh, so I think some of these Southern European economies, they use Turkish soil to basically redistribute um, goods that they used to uh, sell to the Russian economy. So that's one thing that uh, is of uh, essence to the Turkish economy in this scenario. And then secondly, um, it seems as if uh, the whole Turkish region, uh, and here I include countries like Azerbaijan, they, they, they stand to gain from the lack of natural gas coming from um, from Russia to Europe because the um, pipeline towards that region is still intact uh, from Russia to Turkey and onwards, uh, but also the pipeline being built from Azerbaijan to Europe with natural gas, a big deal being signed, uh, is um, on the cards now. So that whole region, weirdly enough, actually gains a bit from this Ukraine conflict. And I think you should see the outperformance of Turkish equities uh, in, um, in that perspective. And I also want to add that I think four or five months ago, I, I tweeted a chart on price earnings valuations across countries. Um, and I think at the time, the average Turkish equity traded at in between three and three and a half. Uh, for the PE multiple, which is extremely low in an international setting. So you actually get your money back, if you look at it that way, pretty swiftly in Turkey. Uh, so the cash flow is there relative to the uh, valuation. Uh, and I think that's been of essence this year. Cash flows are king in uh, in a scenario like the current. Anything you want to add on, on that relative pricing uh, globally and PEs uh, and cash flow considerations, uh, Weston? Um, well, you certainly made a good fundamental case um, that I was unaware of. Uh, I will, however, say that, well, let's see, this time last year, Turkey was in the middle of an extreme currency crisis, um, still is for that matter. Uh, last year, head, I guess, yeah, headline inflation in Turkey was around 20%. Uh, now it's north of 80%. 
um, and and climbing, and at the same time, uh, the CBRT, the the central bank, has been cutting rates and doing basically the exact opposite of what conventional economics would say, which is that you should probably be hiking rates. Um, but oddly enough, the lira is kind of just been stuck at these levels of what we saw last year um, around like, you know, in the 18 handle. And this is like a very, you know, I guess you could say intervened currency um, because just to bring it back to last year, last year you saw the uh, USDTRY basically move from like around nine or 10 up to 18 within the course of a few weeks uh, until President Erdogan came out of nowhere, uh, announced this kind of new program, and essentially they, the, the central bank also used reserves and smashed USDTRY down 50% within the course of like 30 hours or so. Um, extreme volatility. Was, realized vol was higher on the lira than it was on Bitcoin at the time. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I just can't really like trust that particular market because of a lot of these very, very weird, like I wouldn't even call them shenanigans, but like you know, idiosyncratic to Turkey sort of things that are happening. Um, and I think that like a lot of the the inflows and the the upside that you're seeing uh, on the index, at least, is certainly has to be from uh, at least in part domestics that are rushing in uh, just as an inflation hedge or just to buy anything that is not uh, you know just holding lira. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Absolutely fair point. And let me just add before I pop the champagne on behalf of Turkey that uh, being a um, sell-side strategist for more than 10 years on European soil, I can guarantee you that being long Turkey has been the widow maker in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't pop the champagne too early on, on that story, but certainly there are some things sort of brewing be beneath the surface, helping the Turkish economy in a very, very uh, difficult situation. And you should remember this is a pickup in uh, equity prices from an extreme low. Some of the key stocks uh, at the Turkish exchange traded at in between one and one and a half uh, in PE multiples. So, I mean, you basically get your money back in, in one year. Um, quite the difference from another company that we want to talk about right now, Apple. Uh, I don't re recall the exact PE that it's trading at, but uh, probably uh, 30, 40, 50 times as much as uh, the, uh, the Turkish uh, equity market. And um, we have an interesting story from from China. Um, we don't obviously don't have boots on the ground right now there, but but um, we've seen this story of clashes with the police outside of the Foxconn uh, factory in the southern part of China. Uh, so the Apple um, iPhone um, manufacturing side, and I mean we have a question whether this has something to do with Apple or whether this is something. Um, related to, to the zero COVID policy in China. Any views on that and the story that unfolded earlier today, Weston? 
Yeah, that one is kind of puzzling to me because um, so what we're hearing is you're exactly right. You're hearing kind of two stories. Like, why? So why are these these protests and why are these um, clashes with the police happening in this particular instance? And you're getting kind of two stories. You're getting one is a COVID related one, and the other one is that the company is not fulfilling their like salary or the payments. Um, they're not pay paying their workers. Essentially, is is another story that you're getting. Um, so I don't know which one it necessarily is. What I find strange, however, is that so this is all over media right now, right? The, the, this particular protest, but these are certainly not the only protests that have been going on. There's a lot of protests happening all over China for various reasons, mostly the, which are co like anti-COVID zero uh, protesting. Um, but those get scrubbed off of like ch like Chinese social media pretty quickly and don't really make it out um, into sort of broad-based Western media. This, however, is seemingly uh, allowed, and I find it coincidental or strange, at the very least, that this is a Foxconn is a Taiwanese company supplying to a major U.S. company, Apple, um, that they're allowing for this to kind of uh, leak out there. So you can make of that what you will, but you know, it's something to mention. I wanted to add that I've spent uh, quite a few hours over the past week assessing whether this Chinese reopening story uh, has got legs or not. Uh, and and my brief take on it is basically that if you look at restrictions in big cities, they're actually moving in the opposite direction of this reopening story. So restrictions in Beijing, uh, restrictions in, uh, in Shanghai and restrictions in Guangzhou, um, they, they are moving in the wrong direction. Um, and for the first time since the pandemic started, we have sort of firmer restrictions on average in these, these three cities than the um, overall uh, national average. And I think that's quite interesting to follow uh, on a daily basis, given that this reopening story sort of um, made the rounds in, in global media over the past couple of weeks. So if you ask me um, right now, this reopening story is basically dead if you look at the actual uh, action on ground in uh, in China, at least in the big cities. Uh, and the big question is what, what happens in both the southern part of, of China, where these um, riots with the police happened at the Foxconn factory earlier today, but also in Shanghai due to the uh, importance of the port there. Um, I think one of the reasons why we've seen this um, nosedive in international freight rates from Shanghai to both Rotterdam in Europe, but also to uh, LA in, in the US. Um, I think it's driven by this easing of restrictions that we've seen in Shanghai from um, basically early September until now, but now they're starting to uh, reverse course basically. So I wouldn't consider this Chinese reopening story to be anything to celebrate, at least uh, for now. But Weston, let's move back to a couple of the questions that we uh, that we get in here. We uh, get a lot of questions, and uh, please keep them coming. We uh, we always love to interact with our audience. Uh, we we have a question from Claudius. Yeah, yeah. do do you want to add something before I go? Well, ahead? I, I actually want to. I want to just cut the line of everyone and ask you a question regarding um, um, China. <laughs> sure. And this is something I, I asked I asked uh, uh, Jim Biago on Twitter earlier. Um, but uh, this is like so. I don't know. This is a, probably a stupid and oversimplified question, but. What I wanted to ask you was, so is this a scenario, these two, the following two scenarios, is this something that would make sense? Okay, so China shut down, right? That would lead to supply chain disruptions and shortages, and that would become inflationary. 
and then China reopen would result in the you know the world's second largest you know consumer economy consumer market which had been largely absent throughout this entire you know global inflation surge that we're uh, experiencing and so a reopen would also be inflationary so both scenarios would kind of have an inflationary outcome does that is that some, like a way to think about it or yeah i mean it, it makes total sense to me but um, I think you, you, you need to look at it uh, from the perspective of Chinese imports uh, relative to exports. So the stuff that China imports on a net-net basis will prove to be inflationary in, in a scenario like uh, the one you described, while the stuff that China export on a net-net basis will prove to be globally disinflationary in such an environment. So I think on a, on a net basis, goods will drop in price. But I think energy will increase, and in particular, industrial metals will increase in uh, in price as a consequence of a reopening. So we have a bit of of both uh, pros and cons when it comes to inflation uh, during a Chinese reopening. And I mean, frankly speaking, I, I I don't think from an inflation perspective it's necessarily something to to salute <laughs> if if China reopens. Uh, and uh, when I done my tinfoil hat, I also think it's part of the reason why they've dragged along so for, uh, for so um, uh, long time with, with this zero COVID policy. It is a way to keep the economy at bay at a time needed uh, because she knows that a runaway inflation is not a scenario that you would like as a dictator. Let me put it like that. Um, let's get to a, uh, a couple of questions. And I, I, uh, I wanted to pass on the greetings uh, to you for uh, the Japanese win over Germany. Uh, a couple of people have asked right. me to pass, pass on those greetings. But uh, anyway, we have a great question from Claudius. Um, so he's asking what he considers to be a very basic question. Uh, I think it's a super complicated question. But let's see what, uh, what your take uh, is. Are the moves in the dollar impacting short-term bond yields or is it the other way around? Or does it go both ways? <laughs> so when we watch uh, the price action in interest rates, does it spill over to the dollar or is it the other way around? Is it possible to answer that question? Uh, I believe it is. Um, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so Brian, can you pull up chart one, please? Um, this just happens to be a set of charts that I have uh, prepared. but. Basically, what we're looking at is, all right, when you hear people saying, like, uh, this uh, uh, late October was or wasn't the top in U.S. yields, right? Now, I'm not going to argue as to whether it was or wasn't. It may very well be or not be. I'm just wondering if these people realize that and are factoring in what actually triggered this reversal, the actual market flow, um, and why, when they're making these calls, and if they're factoring in the end. Now, uh, if you look at this, basically that's the 21st, that's the top, right? Um, if you go to chart two, that move was essentially driven by a massive, massive yen futures short covering. So that's nearly about 600,000 uh, yen futures contracts that traded. That's about a little under 50 billion notional um, that traded that day. That's the most on record. Um, and more than half of which traded within two hours, within like around that 10.30 a.m. Eastern time. That's when this all kind of kicked off. Um, there was no similar, you know, unusually large U.S. Treasury futures volume or activity at that whipsaw moment. This was the engine. Uh, chart three, if you look at um, the next one, you'll see that this is just CFTC's um, commitment of traders positioning um, for levered funds. 
Um, and since that week, which is, you know, they're, they go weekly, so that's the 25th. Um, but levered funds, hedge funds essentially, that have been basically piled into this short yen uh, trade uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is because it's a Fed trade, right? It's a policy divergence trade. That uh, the short yen positioning fell or um, tr trade exiting by about 20,000 uh, contracts. So this is a short squeeze that's underway, right? Short covering begets short covering, and that pulls USDJPY down and down below through like the 140 handle now um, from 150 plus uh, pr prior. Um, and then, so what the hell was with that moment at the on the 21st of um, October at, at 10.30 a.m.? Uh, last chart, uh, Brian, the number chart four. Supposedly, that was when the Ministry of Finance of Japan um, had intervened, or at least the Nikkei, the media uh, company, reporting about that. Okay, so was that the top in the in U.S. yields? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I just want to point out that what kicked that off in the first place? It was this massive yen short covering, um, apparently because of Ministry of Finance officials, like the Japan officials, meddling in foreign exchange markets, or at least reported to do so, uh, that put that top in. So this is all stuff to keep in mind uh, when you're looking at yields and and whether or not like you're kind of thinking about was that the top or not, um, make sure you're factoring at least that part in or at least that you're aware of what's happening with this because the short yen trade is the most crowded trade in global macro was in 2022. Um, and if that's going to start becoming like unwound and there's a short covering that's going to be underway, you can very well see a rally in U.S. Treasuries or a pull down in further pull down in the long end of the U.S. Treasury curve uh, and as well as dollar yen to, to fall and all that. And um, the, it's not necessarily going to, you know, be like a, in a straight line or anything like that. But I mean, there is still a lot of positioning that needs to be exited uh, if that trade is going to be uh, unwound. So there's your answer. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Interesting takeaways and a very great answer to the question from Claudius. Um, we have a related question from Steve. Um, he's asking for the impact of a lower dollar on the uh, U.S. inflation and whether a weakening dollar will keep inflation propped up in the U.S. even after the housing component rolls over in the CPI into next year. I have my take on that and then I'll allow you to, um, to, to chip in as well, Weston. Seen from European soil, I would not consider the exchange rate of the US dollar as important for US inflation as the exchange rate of other currencies is for inflation elsewhere. The reason is that the US is what I call an 80 slash 20 economy, so 80% domestically based, very domestically propped up by domestic uh, demand, and therefore the import prices of less relevance to the, um, to the 
printed inflation month after month relative to export-oriented, very open economies with um, a demand that is more based on um, export demand in uh, in other economies outside of the home borders. Uh, and therefore, watching um, price action in the US dollar right now, let's assume that we get a 10% drop in, uh, in the US dollar. It's not necessarily something that will alter the picture a whole lot for CPI into next year. It's obviously net-net a positive for inflation, so uh, bringing inflation higher. But I would suspect that a 10% move in the US dollar will only contribute with less than 0.5 percentage points to the um, to the overall CPI basket. That's uh, sort of my gut feeling. We can um, obviously have a deeper look at the numbers and bring a clearer picture on the exact effect. But again, an 80-20 economy is only 20% of the economy is truly impacted, I'd say, directly from, from exchange rates. Any, any views on, on that and sort of uh, potentially also yeah. uh, the side effects in Japan and, and, and how inflation works there? Yeah, ju just to add to that, um, I think that you're totally spot on, right? And I'm just going to trust your math. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, what I'll add to that, though, is I think that what the question is asking isn't necessarily about inflation per se. Um, I think that it's in the context of FOMC and rate hikes mm. and th things like that. And if that is the case, then um, although it might not have uh, that much of an impact, uh, if, if any, um, domestically in, within the U.S., uh, it will have an impact, um, a, you know, a, a weaker dollar on financial conditions. Which is basically the U.S. dollar. It's uh, you know, it's equity markets. It's um, credit spreads and so on and so forth. So that's a component of it. And so if the dollar is going to weaken financial conditions at a time where you know the Fed is, as we saw in the minutes, um, still on a very much still on a hiking path, even if it's going to be fifty basis points or whatever it is, that's still a lot. Uh, that's not going to help that. So um, in that context, it's something to uh this is the weaker dollar is something to keep in mind for domestic policy we have time for a final question um and it's related to the yield curve and the curvature of the dollar yield curve um so the question is wes <laughs> i don't know whether that's your new nickname but uh <laughs> what does the u.s bond curve um why uh does the u.s bond curve being so solidly inverted uh, and what does it tell you right now um with even the for example one month to ten year spread being upside down i mean the inversion is it is pretty insane but at least for the front end, it's really not like that out of line with Fed policy, if uh, if I'm not really mistaken, right? So, um, I mean, I guess it's signaling that we're gonna have this inevitable recession. I mean, there's nothing really I could I could add of of any value here other than to say that it seems it doesn't seem completely, um, you know, out of place per se or or detached from reality um, with regards to front end policy. Um, and, and the, you know, if you're looking at what the three month 30 or t the, the two tens or whatever it is like the, the longer end too, I mean, again, like the, it is, it is a very extreme inversion, but it does seem to make sense within the context of, uh, each of those sort of, uh, each end, each duration and, and what drives that fundamentally on both ends. 
I, uh, I tend to agree, Weston. And one thing that I can add on this discussion on the very inverted yield curve, we are basically approaching um, minus 100 basis points in the spread between two year and 10 year uh, bond yields in OIS terms, so in override index swap terms, um, is that I don't, I don't think we have more than a couple of uh, historical uh, comparisons since the Middle Ages <laughs> when it comes to a yield curve that is as inverted as right now. And and what I can say is that what happened after those uh, yield curve inversions, the latest being in the 70s, uh, was that we had, first of all, uh, ultimately a double top in inflation. That was what happened afterwards. So a slide in inflation, but then afterwards a new top in inflation. Uh, probably due to central banks easing too fast, fiscal authorities pushing too much with the uh, easing agenda as well. And then secondly, we had an, if not an industrial revolution, that, then at least an industrial outperformance in equity space. So after this massive yield curve inversion of the 70s, we had uh, sort of an explosion of investments in, uh, in the industrial space. Uh, so in that case, it seems kind of similar equity-wise to 2001, 2002, where industrials outperformed, for example, technology by a mile over the subsequent two to three years after such an inversion. Whether that it, the analogy makes any sense uh, in today's environment is a bit debatable. But in any case, I tend to think that this is a warning signal that this is not the kind of financial environment that we've been living in for the past 20 years. Weston, uh, we've <laughs> we've now uh, been live for 32 minutes, so I wanted to ask you whether you have any sort of final remarks for the audience um, while we, we check whether uh, any final questions have come in. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, because you, you reminded me of this Japan upset, um, there may be a correlation because you have Japan against Germany that in the World Cup upset, and then you have the Saudis winning. And so there may be a correlation between like countries with a heavy exposure to SoftBank and like upset wins in the World Cup. Um, but I'll have to look into that further. Um, and that's my final thought. <laughs> Short SoftBank, long Japan and Saudi Arabia in the World Cup. And then you have the perfect catch. Or <laughs> yeah, so the next match, whatever it is, if you're the underdog, just see if your country or that country has any exposure to SoftBank, and if it does, bet on it. <laughs> Very good advice to end today's Real Vision Daily Briefing with. And um, Brian, please bring up uh, today's meme because um, I wanted to wish uh, all of you a um, a very nice uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and uh, I will leave you with this uh, meme of the day. Um, Turkey is stuffed, but it's not Thanksgiving yet. Um, Turkey is the best performer this year in equity space. I think that's a mind-blowing fact, and it's 50 percentage points better performing than number two. I will leave it at that for uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing today. My name is Andreas Steno. Thank you for watching out there. We will be back on uh, Monday after the long weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.